You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, Coming Up for Air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Hi, everyone. We're back at Coming Up for Air with my co-host, Annie. Uh, today, we have an, a special guest with us, and I will let Annie... Hi, Annie. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to let Annie go ahead and introduce our guest. Okay. This is a special guest because I know him from the rooms, which for those not familiar with the term, that's rooms of recovery or support. And just seeing him around, um, we have Judge Scott Vanderkar today, who in Columbus, Ohio, has been a municipal court judge, a prosecutor, as well as a drug court judge. And I'll let him explain that as well. He's not only has so much knowledge and compassion for those who find themselves in the court system, specifically related to drug use issues. He has a personal story about it as well, and he's just so great at defining all of those things. I learned so much from hearing him speak recently, so I thought if he would honor us, I would invite him on as a guest this week and let him kind of take it away from there. I also know him. He does work with the Addicts Parents United, so he's got his hand in everything, and when you hear his story, it's amazing where his compassion comes from. So with that said, welcome Scott Vanderkar. Annie, thank you. When you talked about me as a judge, I'm a retired judge, just to be ethical from my standpoint. Right. Just a little history, tell my story from a professional standpoint, and then I'll turn to the personal side. Professionally, I worked in the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office for 15 years. First seven years, did the child abuse cases. A very touching subject, very interesting seven years that I had there. Moved on to do rape, robberies, and murders. And then in 1995, I was elected judge in Franklin County Municipal Court. In 2001, Justice Stratton from the Ohio Supreme Court came to me. She said, Scotty, you need to start a mental health court. And she handed me a binder about that thick, literally. (laughs) And it took me two and a half years. And as I said, when I met you, Annie, to convince, you know, judges sometimes are hard headed, don't want to see change in the justice system and slow to change. Took us two and a half years to convince them to let us try a mental health court. Started a mental health court. In 2009, I received a call from the county prosecutor, Ron O'Brien. And I immediately ran to my best friend who was across the hall, Judge Paul Herbert, who wanted to do human trafficking court. I said, God just called. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but if I knew, I knew that if the county prosecutor was involved, I could get the county commissioners and city council to probably match funds and fund uh, human trafficking court, fund tra- uh, drug court. We started that in September of 2009. Then in January, February of 2010, I'm talking to the prosecutor saying, you gotta let more people in. 
And this is where I had no idea where my life was going to change. But he said, well, um, yeah, we'll let more people in if you do something about the heroin epidemic. So I said, okay. And about two months later, we started what we call the opiate interdiction program or extension program um, off of our drug court. Followed up within 2012, we felt like there was a need for veterans court. We started veterans court. I've said in many meetings at times, maybe on Wednesday afternoon when we ran mental health court, I should be there because for a number of years, I was running all four of those specialized dockets. Judge Herbert started in 2009 with the human trafficking court. Now, a little bit, maybe boring. Some people might not understand what a drug court or a specialized <laughs> docket is. Basically, and I'll, I'll stick mainly to drug court as an example. Someone has committed an offense, can be a misdemeanor. In our case, we also took F4s and five felonies. The county prosecutor would knock down to a misdemeanor of the first degree. Person would enter a plea into our specialized docket. They would have to see the judge every week for drug court or heroin court. They'd have to do 90 AAs in 90 days. They would have to do intensive outpatient treatment and they would be offered medically assisted treatment known in the field as methadone, suboxone, or Vivitrol. I'm a huge Vivitrol fan. With Vivitrol, with random testing, and we would test people seven days a week, drug testing, um, we were able to be 70% successful. You would see these individuals in court every week. Now, part of that is what I call treatment with accountability. You make sure that that person has accountability. They maybe haven't gone to a few meetings and they're in trouble, you might lock them up for the weekend. They maybe have had a dirty test, you may lock them up for the weekend. You know, many times uh, I talked in the meeting that you attended, Annie, about Dakota from Hilliard. And I was at Hilliard High School with him maybe six months ago. He asked me to attend. He was on the dais speaking. But he yelled out, hey, Judge Vandercar's out there. It was the second time he locked me up that I got it. You know, treatment with accountability, making people follow through. But the other side of that is a lot of these And if your parents watching this or family members, you're going to understand this very well. For a period of time, these individuals we call clients have been being called, you're less than, you know, you and a lot of other words that people might use. I won't let you record me saying, but they've been called a lot of names and and not so nice names. Well, the other side of that is, hey, you've been clean for 20 days. And recently I was watching us on, we were on 60 Minutes and, you know, you've been clean for 20 days. You clap for them. You go into your meetings. Congratulations. You've made all your meetings. You know, we will give them rewards as well as sanctions. And for a lot of these individuals, those rewards and not me, but a judge in a black robe saying, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Then that makes a difference to them and inspires them and helps them as long as well as the accountability issue. So that's kind of the professional side of things through this process. Of course, the uh, county commissioners needed to study and make sure their funds were being spent well. 
and a pretty young lady comes over and studies my court and talk, starts talking to me about her 25-year-old, well, her, her son that is in addiction, um, had some issues, and we talked about, we talked about what treatments were available for him. Well, some time passes by, and she has another son that she would describe and I would describe as the perfect young gentleman. We started dating. I started getting to know him, going to some of his sporting events, literally driving him to some of his sporting events because he went to Waterson High School where mm-hmm. they have football buses, but they don't have baseball buses or basketball buses. So you're taking your van and you're driving the kids to their sporting events on the scene in his senior year in 2015. I think he decided I'm going to look up to my big brother. I'm going to try some of what he's doing. He overdosed in March. I lived about three blocks away, drove there at the speed of lightning when I got the call three blocks away. Matt's dead called 911, and I went there and, you know, helped uh, actually helped seven other people, the medics, um, hold him down and give him Narcan. Followed the ambulance to the hospital, sat with him at nights. He went through a week in the ICU, walked out perfect. You know, got him to counseling, got him treatment. In July, he goes to get his wisdom teeth out. Mom did the exact right thing. You know, go to the doctor, no opiates for him. He's had some issues. That's a Thursday. He has his wisdom teeth taken out. Friday afternoon, as I described in the meeting, typical 18-year-old walking around the backyard in boxer shorts, flip-flops, shooting a pellet gun at the squirrels or the the fence or whatever. Then him and his mom went out to Johnny Rockets for dinner. You know, mom had seen a text message said, don't go too far, you can't come back. And she thought, well, he must be thinking about sex with this new girlfriend. And she's going, you know, Matt, if you have sex with somebody, it's a very intimate thing. It changes your life. And he's going, well, mom, you said I could have sex if I didn't do drugs. And uh, she continues the conversation about maturity and making good decisions. And they finish dinner and he goes out to Magic Mountain, plays golf, comes home 11, 30, 12. She does the typical, I wish, you know, if I had somebody sitting next to me, I'd look in their eyes and she looked in his eyes like many of the parents watching would do. And sees that he's perfectly clean and perfectly fine. Matt, what are you going to do? Mom, I'm going to go in the basement and play my PS4. Um, the next morning I get that repeat phone call. Call, you know, she just said, get to the house or something. Call, I shouldn't say call 911, but I called 911 anyways. Driving to the house, meet the squad there, body taken out limp. At the hospital, last rites almost red. Doctor comes up and hugs her and says he's breathing. They take him up to an ICU again, same unit we had been in six months or four months earlier. Um, knew a lot of the same medical people, was there for two days, but clearly body deteriorating. And finally, on um, Tuesday, plug was pulled and Matt passed away. Very sad. And that's where I said when I agreed to do the drug court, I had no idea that it would drag me into personally experiencing that. You know, his brothers has a one and a half year old that I spend a lot of time with. 
And boy, when I look at that one and a half year old and think, wow, watch him grow up for 18 years and then watch him die. You know, one of the toughest things a parent can do and see experience. I watch it with my girlfriend all the time. You know, it's there every day. You see the squad go by, you hear sirens, you go past the school that he played baseball or basketball or football at. It's memories every single day, every single minute. And I know a lot of parents know what I'm talking about, either from the standpoint of they've had it happen or they fear it every day. You know, and that's the personal story. You know, when I was on the bench before 60 Minutes did film, we made a pie chart and we said, what what can we do to change this epidemic? And, uh, and you know, was get churches involved differently. No more stigma. Um, maybe, you know, right now it's six week waiting to get into detox. The churches could provide houses where people could wait, like sober living houses, people could wait for treatment Um, instead of being out on the street, homeless, overdosing, dying. We could stop that. Obviously, the medical field could handle different things differently. And there's been a lot in the news about how opiates are prescribed and how they're passed out. And, you know, there's just like in every profession, there's good people, there's bad people, and there's some doctors that really care. And there's other doctors that are uh, capitalizing, you know, a cash cow, and they only take people in for cash and passing out uh, certain substances. And I'll just leave it at that. I'm not trying to start a battle on on our podcast today. (laughs) You know, law enforcement, looking at PARI programs um, or DART programs. And if you look those up, those are instead of arresting people, it's getting people off to treatment. You know, in the judicial system, um, drug courts, opiate courts, uh, um, probation with different Uh, you know, standards there, having medically assisted treatment available to anybody that needs that. Again, I'm the bigger fan of Vivitrol because what Vivitrol does, if you don't know, is it blocks you from getting high on an opiate or junk on alcohol. Um, With methadone and Suboxone, some people still use this treatment mode and they have their place, but you're still getting high. You're still going to have to eventually withdraw off that drug. With Vivitrol, you've already withdrawn and it helps block the triggers for an addict. I know, Annie, when you heard me talk, we probably did a little statistics. You know, most of the people watching the podcast probably already know them. You know, 184 people die in a day in the United States. You know, what would we do if a couple airliners were going down day after day, five days in a row in a blaze of fire and 184 people were dying? President of the United States would be on TV and saying we're fixing it. And admittedly, he has called for a state of emergency. But until we see the money flowing, it's going to take money to solve some of these problems, to have more detox, to have treatment. You know, part of my story made me realize we've got to stop this 
another statistic. We have more people died last year in 2016 than died in the whole Vietnam War. You know, over 60,000 people. You know, that's horrendous as a society that that kind of epidemic, you know, and some people have called it a pandemic. Worst health crisis in over 100 years. We have to do something about that. I mean, I haven't looked at a watch. Okay, I've talked about... (laughs) 20 minutes or so. So that means what? Six, seven people just died in the United States. Isn't that terrible? You know, Ohio, over 4,000 people died in 2016. At that rate and with the increasing numbers we've seen, that would put us over 6,000 in 2017. You know, people predicted it would peak like two years ago. Hasn't happened. Hasn't peaked. Let me interrupt the show for just a moment. I'd like to remind listeners there's a wealth of information about topics related to substance use disorder on alliesinrecovery.net. Allies in Recovery is a private members-only site that connects families dealing with substance use. It also teaches strategies for both helping your loved one and self-care. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the topic. You know, one more thing that I've worked on is seeing Matt and understanding the process is I've worked on an invention that would be an overdose alert and a use alert um, that could be worn by people with substance abuse disorders. Um, You know, there's 21 million uh, substance use disorders in the United States. And, you know, it just made me think, you know, people think you might die of overdose instantaneously. You don't. With heroin, you asphyxiate over hours, quit breathing. So many people do it in isolation versus maybe the general bias thinking that, oh, wow, you, you know, you're out partying. No, a lot of addicts use in isolation and just over hours after use asphyxiate Um, with fentanyl. It's much quicker, and with carfit and all, it is drastically quicker. I had a picture. Um, I don't have it. I couldn't pop it up on the screen, but you take a vial, and you see a, a small grains of heroin in a vial. Then you see with fentanyl, you see maybe 10 little grains in that. And then with carfentanil, you see one grain in the vial. And that's how powerful that carfentanil is. I'm gonna, Annie, I'm going to let you ask me a few questions. I've kind of rambled on. You know, I am, I'm a retired judge. That means I'm a lawyer. So, you know, you talk. So... Well, I'm very impressed with your story and really sorry to hear about her son. I'd heard the story a few times and it's remarkable in good and terrible ways. So, um, Lori, let me ask you first, do you have any questions or comments? Because I'm sure Lori's had an overdose experience in her family. I'm sure she has some things to say. I had a similar experience uh, like your like your girlfriend did. My son also overdosed and I found him in his bed and um, he ended up hospitalized for four days and they came out and told us, you know, at least four times that he wasn't going to make it. 
and he miraculously did. And I happen to be one of the lucky ones because he is in recovery now for, uh, he's going on two years. I one a couple of things that I wanted to, um, to just kind of ask you. First thing is you said you saw a 70% success rate, which is, that's a high success rate and that's pretty awesome. And I'm wondering if there isn't a way to kind of get that out there a little bit more out to the public, like nationwide and not limit it to just this small, you know, this county in Ohio. I know that we do have drug courts here in Massachusetts. They're just starting. And also in Rhode Island, um, actually Rhode Island has had them for a little while, but a 70% success rate is pretty darn awesome. Um, is there anything going on with that? Are they trying uh, to get that out there? Yes, yes. Myself personally, that's why I left the bench. I had four years left on a six-year term. And I said, there's only about 25, 30% of courts in Ohio that have a drug court. I'm going to get off the bench. I'm going to start a 501c3. I started it in Matt's name. We now call it Lives Back. Uh, website just came alive today. And, you know, we hope that eventually, yes, we can take the message nationwide. You've got to start drug courts. You're seeing the attorney generals and political people talk about it. Um, but part of it has to, you know, we have to fund these things. And there are different places and ways to do that. Again, I'm not going to totally take the bandwagon and where that money should come from. But, you know, if you read Sam Cunone's book, Dreamland, uh, he pointed his finger at where some of the money should come from. Mm -hmm. And we could fund some of these things, in including drug courts. And that's my goal of my, my organization, LivesBack.org. Also, you said your son. Again, you know, boy, if he was wearing my invention, you know, it would have alerted you. You would find him hours earlier, and then he wouldn't have spent that time in the hospital. So we're hoping we're inventing something that insurance will pay for and will save thousands of lives. Have you, um, I'm sure you've heard of Facing Addiction, Unite to Face Addiction. Yes. I don't know. Have you been on there? You might want to get yourself connected there. Just, just kind of, sure. because they also have this... They have this time when you can kind of talk about what you're doing right. and you can kind of make it nationwide known that you're doing this. And I just, I'm just wondering, because it's such a great idea that I'm just thinking maybe getting connected with a ton of people would be. Sure. Absolutely. I would appreciate if you email me that information. Okay. Too. I okay. will. Can I jump in there? Yep. If anybody that's watching the podcast just wants to communicate, wants to reach out, needs information, it's S as in Scott, V as in Victor, D as in dog, K as in kite. So SVDK95 at gmail.com. I'm writing it down as you speak. Sure, sure. I appreciate Which I think that. I have your email address anyway, but. Right, but for the viewers, I was right. doing so the viewers would have it so they could reach out to me. It's very typical for me to do a parents meeting and over the next couple months have a parents call and say, this is going on with my child. Mm -hmm. 
saying I'm a chemical dependency expert, but I do know a lot of people that I can turn to and have a lot of contacts so I can say, well, why don't you call this person? Why don't you talk to this person? Why don't you try this or why don't you try that? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times one of them is, hey, don't be afraid to charge your child with an offense if you have a drug court in your community and try to get your daughter or son into that drug court. Nothing beats a two-year-long program like you made comment about 70% successful. And and that's because you've got medically assisted treatment. You've got a judge looking over them. They have to come in weekly. They have to drop seven days a week if the program's doing it correctly. They're getting them to IOP. They're getting them to 90AA, 90 days, because we all know when it's done, it's over with, you know, AA meetings or that type of meeting is free. They're 24 seven. And I have friends that are, you know, I'd name them. Mike Brown, I think is clean of alcohol, something like 40 some years. You know, I have friends that AA have carried them for decades. You know, I just kind of piggybacking on what you're what you're talking about, because I totally agree with you that in order to fight this opiate epidemic or pandemic, we have to have this like it's not even a two pronged or a three pronged. It's this multi pronged solutions. Right. We have to we have to find a way to stop the flow of drugs, you know, make it less available. We have to have drug courts. We have to have primary care involved. We have to have doctors and medical facilities understanding about prescribing practices and dentists. And so it's this, it's this huge community, multi-pronged or multifaceted solution that's the only way that we're going to um, eradicate it. And the one thing that I think that a lot of people forget about, and that is parents and family members, you know, we're, we're really kind of told um, a lot of the time to kind of stay out of it or pushed away. Not, not as much as in the past. Things are, things are starting to change a little bit, but I don't know if you've ever looked at the website that the podcast is out of, but Allies in Recovery, if you get a chance to take a look at it because it's the same this concept is the same idea of what you were talking about rewarding Mm -hmm. that good behavior and trying to focus on that as parents and family members right to try and yeah reward that good behavior and you don't want to have anything to do with that bad behavior right you're not gonna you're not gonna promote that at all so it was just when you were talking about that I was like oh he should go and look at the website because I think like it, you know, I think you'd, you'd be like, okay, yeah, that's, and you, you have actually a lot more power and I would absolutely love to have been able to put my son in that kind of a situation where there was, you know, someone else of authority having that positive. I I think it, it, it just, it can be more effective a lot of the time than families, but but you might want to just take a look at it because okay, it also has a 70% success rate of getting someone who is diagnosed with substance use disorder into treatment willingly. 
That's huge. That's that's magnificent. You know, something I would tag on or follow with is you talked about the whole community get involved mm-hmm. and our politicians and everybody have to stay out of silos. Uh, we tend to stay in silos and say, over here, we have this opinion. Over here, we have that opinion. Whatever state office holder, this office holder, this office holder, this politician, no. We've got to put politics aside. We have to come together, get out of our silos and all work together. And we still, I still see politicians doing it all over the country, you know, in different settings, you know, it's about their agenda and their ideas with the opiate uh, epidemic. Are they really just trying to get reelected versus somebody else? No, join hands, put the resources together and don't make it a political uh, agenda, make it a health issue and defeat that health issue. And none of us have said, one key word it's a brain disease it's mm-hmm. not a moral it's not a moral choosing it's a brain disease right just like smoking cigarettes just like <laughs> alcohol <laughs> no, look, you know, on 60 minutes one of the people said hey it's is, is it really any different than a diabetic stuffing down a bunch of Twinkies and she got a bunch of hate mail but <laughs> the reality is it's basically true. You know, there have been people that have said, you know, no more Narcan after three times. Come on, are we going to say somebody that smoked doesn't get help from the squad or somebody that overate doesn't get help from the squad? We're not going to say that. There are a lot of similarities between heart failure and suffering with substance use disorder. You've got the, you know, you haven't exercised in years. Your parents both had a heart attack. You, you know, make frequent stops at Mickey D's, you know, all of these kind of things. And if, if a person with a heart attack goes into the hospital, everybody's running around, oh my gosh, don't let him die, don't let him die. You know, we treat him, we spend $500,000 to get him the best possible treatment. He leaves the hospital with recommendations of particular heart doctors to go and see. And then yeah, nobody's asking <laughs> Who, how did he cause his own heart attack? There's, that right. argument is missing then. How did right. he cause his diabetes? How did this heart disease or lung cancer start? Those questions don't even come into play when it's right. other health issues. That, that behavior that's, that addiction drives. Right. You know, and, the behavior, and, drives, the right. behavior it drives is what, is what people are so fearful and shaming about. Right. And, that, that's what I, and then, you know, someone has a second heart attack and what do they do? They treat them. Nobody right. questions and says, well, you know, if you have a third heart attack... You know, you're done. done. You know, know, and another thing when Annie came on, it's a it's totally I'm ADDing, but also it's just educating people to realize that if you're 14 and you start using heroin, your brain stops developing. Mm -hmm. Your frontal lobe stops developing in females. It usually develops to 24 and males. We're always behind to 26. (laughs) And so, you know, you have a circumstance where you have a bunch of 20 year olds but their maturity rate or 30 year olds their maturity rates like a 14 or a 15 year old now you keep them clean from a year to a year and a half that brain will heal and they're to its normal rate and all of a sudden you have a normal maturity right Yep, that's true. It's just time. That's what I love about the accountability of drug court is that it gives them time and it sends them to meetings and they pick up something from every meeting. It's another chance, another meeting, another day where they have more time and more chance. 
Absolutely. Right. And they're sober, right? They have to be sober for part of the time. They're not going to be using all of the time, right? So when they are sober and you're reinforcing, oh, you know, this is good behavior, it's just, it's just, it extends it. It gives you more time to work with them, a higher chance that they are going to go into recovery or into treatment. It's all good. Absolutely. Absolutely. My questions are, I had a personal question as far as the text message that uh, Matt received when it said, don't go too far, you won't come back. That meant, that was in reference to overdosing. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. That was a friend that knew that he had gone out. Obviously, his mom had made sure he didn't get opiates from the doctor. But, you know, we know about triggers. And Matt was obviously triggered by, well, I'm going to have surgery. Maybe I'm going to be in pain. I better go out and have something because I know mom told the doctor I shouldn't have anything. So we got it himself. And then once the surgery was over, I didn't see him in a bunch of pain. But, you know, once the addict then has that uh, drug in their possession, oh, it's going to be very strong for them not to use it once they have it in their possession. Was the person who he purchased it from ever caught or in trouble Um, of any sort? You know, obviously, as a former judge that signed thousands of search warrants, law enforcement spent a year, you know, looking at it. And in the long run, county prosecutors just said not quite enough there to prosecute. And, you know, I could go on for a half hour about that one. You know, at first, mom wanted to see it happen. Now mom realizes it's not going to bring him back. And even the people that he got it from were so low level, pretty pathetic themselves, lives and what was going on in their lives. So that did not happen. It's obvious, though, prosecutors are looking more and more at manslaughter type charges. If a per- they sell, especially knowingly that it has fentanyl or car fentanyl in it, they've been on, have prosecuted some people and you know gotten some pretty hefty sentences for some of the the dealers. And that's a good message to be out there for that dealer that just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a catch twenty two. I mean, there's a lot of kids that you know probably have used and dealt a little bit to feed their own habit that's one thing somebody that deals and doesn't use and does it totally out of greed lock them up forever you know i go back to on on sam's getting his book sold today but you know read dreamland and and the pure just greed and and you know we don't care what we do to your society as long as Mm -hmm. we can make some money and let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998.
Um, we interviewed Officer Rick Minard of the Hope Task Force, and he talked about certain people that would be placed on Vivitrol would be targeted by dealers in the area. So certainly those are the situations where you want to see harsher, stiffer penalties come more than somebody's kid who's struggling and desperate and doing whatever it takes to be in the game. Absolutely. Which remind, which leads Rick's me to my a next great guy. Oh Rick's yeah. A he's great guy. an amazing yeah. compassion out of no personal yes. experience. So what yes. blew us away. <laughs> Were dealers ever sent through drug court? No, no dealers. And, you know, we had one or two problems where somebody got in and we figured out that they were doing that. And if we figured, you know, obviously immediately canned those people. But no, you would be talking about people, misdemeanors, F4s and F5s, the lower lower felonies, the people that had a possession charge of, you know, they were possessing heroin, but they weren't selling it, uh, were the okay. ones that were allowed in. Okay, and then obviously because I have no knowledge of the court system or anything, I hope these aren't dumb questions, but was it was it drug specific? Was marijuana also um, involved in some of your cases? Um, I wouldn't say especially as far as, you know, typically you would see they would use marijuana, alcohol, along with other drugs. You know, if they were a multi-drug user, I think they call it polysubstance mm-hmm. use. You know, they use multiple different substances. But you don't have to be in drug court. You don't have to have committed a drug offense. It can be a domestic violence. It can be an assault. It can be a disorderly conduct. It it can be a theft. You know, they're stealing to feed their habit. You, you know, you, you get them arrested, you talk to their family and their family saying, oh, they're using all the time. That's why they're stealing the ink cartridges from a certain office supply place. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I walked in an office supply place about six months ago and, you know, in the parking lot, it was weird. There was something, you know, you just knew it was wrong. This way this person was driving by, I felt something, but I didn't know what it was. And I'm walking in the door and all of a sudden somebody bolts past me and jumps in that car. <laughs> and, you know, and they had a whole one of those baskets full of ink cartridges. Well, you know, they're not after that ink cartridge, the ink. They're going to go sell that to the mom and pop store, you know, for pennies on the dollar and then go buy drugs. Mm-hmm. So, no, it doesn't have to be drug specific. It can be any offense then taken into drug court. Okay, then how do they find themselves in drug court? Is it a recommendation? It can be, you know, we have tried to educate in the system. You educate the police officers to ask for it. You educate the attorneys to ask for it. Um, you educate the prosecutors, to, when I say the, the the defense attorneys, to ask for it. And you, and you educate the prosecutors. The prosecutor might read the report and go, wait a minute, this guy's stealing because he has a drug offense. Hey, judge. Hey, defense attorney. Why don't you talk to the defendant about entering drug court? Then you talk to them. They enter freely, but they stay at the whim of the judge and, and their staff. Oh, okay. And was, was there an age limit to where this opiate epidemic, I know it, it's all air levels of society and community, but it does seem to be targeting about my son is 26 and had a prescription painkiller dependency, which was an opiate for Percocet. Right. It seems to be targeting his age group. Was there an age limit that you were too old, you would age out of drug court, or is no. there too young? No, well, obviously we were an adult court, so too young would be eight under 18. But, you know, my belief is you should have these for juveniles as well. 
you should be able to have a drug court for juveniles. Um, but as far as adults going 18 and up now, yes, we are population in our, our docket um, averaged in the 20s. But we had people in their 60s that were having issues. You know, we've seen on the news and in our community, eight-year-olds overdosing and, you know, 70-year-olds overdosing. You know, 70-year-olds replacing their meds with heroin because it's so cheap. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, What was the family involvement like? That is probably one thing that we could have done better and in the future I would build into a drug court is more, you know, family supports for the family and for more rebuilding of that bond back with the family because in so many of our cases, the bond with the family at a high rate had been torn down and only a few, a lower percentage of the parents would come around or they there was communication, you know, a lot of the parents had just lost hope. And then toward the end of the program, you might get a letter or this, you know, the client might say, oh, family's starting to accept me back and they can't thank you enough. Leads me to one of my stories. I don't think, Annie, I brought it with me, but I've got a teddy bear. It usually sits right behind me, the briefcase. It's around the corner, so I won't get up and move. But on my last day, this year, young lady walks up, little teddy bear in her hand and says, my son wants to give his teddy bear. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't take your son's teddy bear. No, my son says, you gave him back his mother. He wants to give you his Mm. teddy bear. And every time I hold up that teddy bear and I tell that story, the hair on my arm stands up. But that's what it's all about. A 25-year-old getting their child back, the child getting their parent back, mm-hmm. you know, rebuilding lives. And, and you know, that's true for the parents, the grandparents. You mentioned the Addicts Parents United mm-hmm. and you knowing Brenda Mark Stewart with the Addicts Parents United, they do great things. We talk about it being a family disease. You know, it affects brothers, mothers, sisters, you know, aunts, uncles, you know, children, grandchildren. So many people are affected by one addict, you know, having the, the brain disease and having the addiction. Right. I remember you saying that one mom had said, so are you telling me I should want my son to get arrested? And you said, yeah, because then he'll end up in my care and I'll save his life, at least try to for the next two years. And that's not what families are usually when they're dealing with issues of crime and punishment are used to hearing from a a judge. Absolutely. I, 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 you know, after I left the bench, we talked um, a year ago to one family. We're trying to convince them to follow that line and they didn't want to. And the other attorney texted me about a month ago now and said, well, you remember so-and-so and I don't want to put his name out on video, but remember so-and-so? And I said, yes. He goes, I'm at his funeral. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, in the rooms, you know, Joe runs the Wednesday night meeting that a lot of us go to. You know, there's no right or wrong answers, but I can say coming from the retired judge part, enabling is never the answer. Getting somebody help is the answer because you right. can enable somebody right into the grave. Right, mm-hmm. and you can, or you can enable them into 
into treatment or into recovery. So let the allow them to suffer the natural consequences yes. of their actions, right? Which could lead them down a path of sobriety, right? You know, yes. right? I, that's that's what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing is, and and it's it's really interesting because my son said to me, you know, one of my absolute cutoffs for me, something that I absolutely would stop using drugs, is is prison. I would never go, I, you know, if I started down that path that I was going to have to go to prison, I would stop using. And immediately the bells went off in my head. It was like, well, that's a good thing because if I have to, I'll have you arrested, you know, because right. okay, you're, you're telling me that that's, that's your, that's your point. Then, then we'll do it. Right. Um, I didn't tell him that, mind you. I'm telling you that, but not. Right. Him. I get it. I get it. You, you know, know, the problem is with addicts. A lot of times, even they all. Oh, I, I just, I just snorted. I didn't. You know, I yeah. didn't inject. There's always different levels of I'm not going to, mm-hmm. and it's sad how low and how much life can get destroyed before they will turn away from the drug. It's that powerful. You know, till they're homeless, lost jobs, their children are in mom and dad's custody or children's services custody. It's amazing what it takes for some of them to turn around. And God bless you as far as congratulations to your family that your son's been able to do it. Yeah, and I'm I'm just a lucky one. That's, you know, and I'm very aware that that could change at any given moment. That's the, that is the scary part when I go into the rooms and I listen to the stories and I know the parents have that fear forever. Once it's been there, they can be clean 10 years and you're still worrying. I think one, another emotion that kind of is toxic to the situation is if you feel sorry for your kid, because that can lead you to do, you know, unwise things. And we always put a different spin on enabling because that word is overused as if that's causing the situation to be worse. And you can enable in in terms of empowering somebody to go in the right direction. But if you feel sorry for that kid, this disease will come after everything vulnerable vulnerable about you, your fear, your, the, your sense of responsibility and cleaning up their messes. And when you feel sorry for them, you're going to get devoured. You can get them killed if you feel sorry for them and block natural consequences or help them out of jams that maybe they need to go through. I'd had a mom tell me a couple of nights ago that her son was, had made some terrible decisions and was losing a home. And that was the worst thing that could happen. And I said, but maybe it's the best thing because that might put him on the path to learning and realizing and taking steps in the right direction. You're you're kind of always rerouting back toward where you need to go. And natural consequences are a great way for that to happen. So if you feel sorry for your son or daughter or other loved ones and you step in and try to prevent them from going into drug court or having a charge or having natural consequences, that can get them killed too. Absolutely. 100% agree. I have this, uh, and I'm writing this story right now, actually. Uh, it's, I'm calling it uh, a short all it is is about, and I believe this, I believe that raising kids or in teaching in general is all about making the bed, right? It's all about when, when your kid's old enough to start making the bed, six, seven years old, okay, every day, Johnny, I want you to go in there and you're going to make your bed from now on. And if on the first day, Johnny goes in and he makes his bed and I go in there and I go... Oh my God, no, this wasn't right. This isn't right. That's not what I mean. I want you to fold this down and this has to get tucked in and fluff up these pillows. There's so 
many detrimental things that I've just done to Johnny, right? I've, I just basically told him, well, you are, aren't you incompetent and aren't you not able to, to make the bed or to do this, right? So don't worry about it. When you make a mistake like this, I'll come in here and I'll clean it up. And so I've kind of just taught Johnny to go ahead and manipulate me to make that bed for him every morning. Why? He has no incentive to make the bed, right? right? And he, how does he feel? How does his self-esteem feel? He doesn't feel good, right? He's not a good bed yeah, maker, sure. <laughs> right? Sure. right? And sure. I think all of life, all of life's lessons are really, it's just like making the bed. Right. Right. Yeah. Tell, them, tell them they did a good job. And over time, you know, maybe down the road, they see how it's done as they do better and better. But you compliment right. them, build them up. Right. Reward them. Reward right. the good stuff. Right. Oh, right. look, you know, I love how you folded that blanket down today. That looks great. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's about all I've got. How, unless Lori has anything else. And we'd like to know what work you're doing now to spread the word of what you're doing and with your and your invention and how everyone can get in touch with you again if you want to remind us okay i'll go back to my email address is svdk95 at gmail.com reach out to me i've got an a nonprofit livesback.org that we're trying to start drug courts with got lifenet metrics where we're inventing a drug overdose device to save lives and you know we've talked about that and those are the things that I'm trying to do to make a difference. You know, I step into about everything else in the community that I can dealing with the <laughs> epidemic, but those are the major things. Well, I have to tell you, this was a, um, a great interview and I am so happy that you came uh, today for this, uh, for this podcast. You had a lot to contribute. Uh, judge Vander, Vanderkar, is that correct? Vanderkar? Retired judge. You always call judge, right? For life. Well, it's okay if people say that. I just have to make sure, you know, when things are being recorded that yeah. you know, the powers to be see that it's retired judge. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. You have, I mean, it's really powerful, the compassion you have in your way of, of explaining the court system to lay people, to parents and families who, you know, a lot of times when I, I hear families walk into court situations, they say, I can't even believe I'm here. You have a great way of make of kind of normalizing it, not because it's okay, but because you're on board with the families for families to heal. And we so, so appreciate that and thank want you, you to keep it up. We want to support you. you any way we can. So um, keep going and thank you so much thank, thank you. you i appreciate it thank you <laughs> see you soon bye-bye okay. coming up for air is sponsored by allies in recovery.net the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one if you have a comment or a question or want to share something about your situation, use the comment form on the Allies in Recovery member site. You'll find it at the bottom of the homepage or at the top of the discussion blog. We look forward to hearing from you. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it is available online or simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on Allies in Recovery. Recovery.net. Our music, entitled Joie de Vivre, is composed and performed by cellist Eric Corey. 
Thank you for listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. Be sure to check the member site regularly for new podcasts.